Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Family, if there's, there's any of you right now who want to be a part of Children's Church, you're, you're more than welcome to go out at this time. I think the, the age, anything at 50 years of age and under, will be more than, more than sufficient, and at least some of you would be happy if uh, a few of the people near you uh, went out into the Children's Church. Um, and if any of you today have a child near you and you're of a grandparent age, uh, join in partnership if uh, you're invited in just so that we, we all can appreciate the sermon and our time in God's Word. Uh, family, you know I'm not a really big country lover, all right? Not my favorite form of music. Many of you think that that's the greatest thing in the world, but I'm impressed every now and then with the story of a believer uh, within that genre. There was a man of yesteryear, he died more than 20 years ago, by the name of Jerry Clower. Jerry Clower was more than 40 years old when, as a, a seed and fertilizer salesman, someone told him, hey, you ought you to put some of those jokes on record. They're really good. Well, from 1971, when he put them out at, at more than 40 years of age, he made it to the Grand Ole Opry by 1973. Uh, just an incredible rise of fame. And they were all regional jokes. And he would tell stories as if he lived in this fictional town of Yazoo, Mississippi. But he was born and raised in Mississippi, in just the backwaters of Mississippi, and there he found the, the fullness of his jokes. But what he doesn't tell too many people is that he was a committed believer who had accepted Jesus Christ when he was 13 years of age. And no matter what um, scale of life uh, that he lived in, he saw it as his responsibility to live out his faith. Well, he's now an older adult. His son is in the youth program of his local church. And on that night, uh, in, the, in the youth activity, his son was hit by a car. And apparently the, the word got out that he needed to go to the hospital, but no one told him the severity of the illness, just that he needed to rush to the hospital. His son was in an automobile accident. So as any of your parents are, your mind goes wild. How, how bad? Is he alive? What am I going to need to accomplish? Instead of growing panicky, this was his prayer as he tells the story. He says, Lord, help me when I arrive there to act like a believer and not like a pagan. And his, his whole goal was having accepted Christ from 13 and watched God work in his life from that early age to now as, as a 
full developed adult with, with children who are about ready to go off into their own adulthood. He says, let the consistency of my life be something that is evident to people. Well, that's the essence today of Psalm 63. In, in, in fairness, it's almost considered the high water mark of, of David's writing of even the Psalms. Some of the, the, the commitment of his heart, the desires of his soul are such that they seem to be heightened over anything that we find in the Psalms. And it's very important that we, we recognize the, the very background of the book. David is fleeing Jerusalem. His son Absalom has turned the entire nation of Israel against him. And Absalom will kill his father if the two come together. Now family, a, a little bit more to the background. Because of the adultery that David had committed with Bathsheba, God had pronounced judgment that he would always be in constant war and his family would be in turmoil. But at the foundation of that, David was a very inattentive father. And we see that in the text of Scripture. We see that Amnon, his son, raped his own stepsister, Tamar. Tamar was the, the shared sister of Absalom. And Absalom was horrified when David did nothing to Amnon in light of the in light of. Family, you'll see cash walking around from time to time. And I'm just warning you, all right, uh, you who are grandparents, just recognize that, that cash is here. But his mom is delightfully looking and enjoying the things of the Lord. And so, uh, if you will, if he makes it by camera today, he's the, the other bald guy in the picture. Um, so uh, just don't, don't be surprised if you see two of us. It's not a camera misadjustment. It's not a problem. Uh, he's just the shorter one. But family, <sighs> Absalom was so angry that his dad did nothing that Absalom killed Amnon. So now we have trouble. What, what's David going to do about that? And the answer is nothing. We see, the, we, we see the, the festering problem going on for years. Finally, Absalom simply takes matters in his own hands, turns the country against his father, and, and David is left to escape. And what I want you to just simply remember by this, this small moment in time is every one of us have feet of clay. You, you will not be a perfect human being. You will not be a perfect parent. You will not be a perfect believer. You will have something that somebody else can point a finger at. And you need to be careful who you who point fingers or we who point fingers. And you who have the feet of clay, recognize and ask for grace. But David is now fleeing the city. And what I want you to, what I want you to understand, I want you to grasp is, David is now more than 60 years of age. It's far older than many of us would be if we make it into our 80s. David is wore out. When you read the text, you get a, you get a picture of a, a man with very little energy left in his tank. 
he will be dead and gone by his 72nd birthday. And so there's just there's not a lot left in his tank. And, and, you, and you know, if you know the, the character of David, he has squeezed out of life uh, many privileges. How would you like to be a teenager today and say, yep, I killed a lion and a bear, and I did it without a gun, without a bow, just my bare hands and a slingshot. That's pretty impressive. I killed the largest man that we know in existence in that moment of time, nine foot six, 500 plus pound Goliath, I killed him because he defied the God of the armies of Israel. We saw him gain acclaim as the man who would kill 10,000 of Israel's enemies. We saw him a man who was a musician who played the harp. We saw him as a man who now writes and leaves us with many of the Psalms. We find a man who captures and sets up a capital city in Jerusalem. We find a man used by God in tremendous ways. But we also find a man with feet of clay. We find a man who, who was a liar. And that lie led to the killing of more than 70 priests and their families by Saul. We find him a, an adulterer. We find him a murderer. We find him a man who has incredible feet of clay. But through it all, in every instance, we find a man who always runs back to have an intimacy with God. And we find that in the very first verse of chapter 1. I'm sorry, of chapter 63. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My, faint, my, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, family, we're going we're gonna to continue reading in a moment, but what I want you to do is this. I want you to notice all of the personal pronouns that are found within chapter 63. All of the times when he comes back to discuss that relationship with God that God wants us to have with him. It's one of intimacy. He is not just the God sovereign over all of the earth. This is my God in, 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 in friendship, in worship, in connection, in relationship. And I want you to see that. It is a powerful part of this morning. You see... This psalm's focus is not on the disciplines of Bible study or Sunday morning worship. This is about knowing and being known by God. David said he earnestly seeks God. The idea of earnestly seeks has its very root in the word dawn. So some people have come to the idea or the, I think, the wrong conclusion that if you're really, really godly, you get up early and get your devotions done. All right? Family, that's not the idea here. I don't get up. If I had a chance 
I would get up each and every morning at the crack of noon. <laughs> All right? And I know that's true with you. Family, some of us don't find it easy to get up and get our devotions done the first thing. The idea is that the highest priority to have, the relationship that you consider the most valuable, the treasure of your soul, is a relationship with God on high. Not the first thing in the day as if you check something off the box as that's important and I get it done. The idea is, is I love my God so much. What he did for me in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins is so great, so wonderful, so profound that I cannot think of anything better to have than to know him more richly and more wonderfully. And that's the point that we will come to today. So we want to see that depth of that relationship. Relationship with God is not an organized habit, but a sustaining and longing desire. If we want this earnest longing for God, let me suggest a few building blocks, all right? And if you're taking notes today, you want to write this down. If you want a sustaining relationship with God on high through the work of Jesus Christ, let me suggest to you three building blocks by which to have your devotions, by which to live your life out, and which to experience life with the Lord. The first is simply this. Um, expect that God speaks to us. You see, first through the Bible, to make us wise in this plan of salvation. He communicates through his word. And he enriches our awareness of Christ. Family, I want you to notice, expect him to show up. Expect him to be a part of your life. If he has told us that once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit to communicate and work out life with us, we recognize that he is speaking to us. He enriches our awareness of Christ. I want you to see, secondly, God rules everything for his glory. God rules everything for his glory. By, by loving him... We gain the greatest grasp on living. And everything is done by purpose. God works everything together for good for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So you need to understand, when, when God gives you that raise at work and you go home and you're so excited, praise God. But you know, when you also go through a life trial that hurts and is painful, and the only place you can run to for any sort of respite is to communicate with God and ask Him to help you. He is doing so for your good with as much of the expectation of good as the raise was. Notice, if you will, thirdly, God shows His sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Family, when we gather here today, we, we're given an incredible privilege. 
And what I want you to see is that in good times, God's power, God's planning, God's care and glory are plain so that in bad times, we can continue to have confidence in God's loving interaction. We see that with David today. And so let's join and read this psalm together. We're going to begin in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with your fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with wonderful or joyful lips. When I remember upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So family, I want you to see there's, there's essentially two things that I want you to, to glean out or draw out this morning. First off, I want you to see what we can learn about God here. If we can see what gave David confidence, we're going to have a greater grasp of that wonderful truth. Then we're going to see what do we learn about David from something like this. And what his desires are going to be for us. So I want you to see first what we learn about God. And the lessons about God come down to three words. Power, glory, and steadfast love. Now there are some of you mathematicians out there that are going, but wait a second, Pete. That's four words. No, the Hebrew language, it's three we just needed four in English. So I know some of my smart aleck high school kids will be telling me how wrong I was later. So shut up. <laughs> and you needed that before you went to Cedarville. Okay? Family, I want you to understand the, 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 the Bible's written in essentially two different languages. We know there's a few chapters that are written in Aramaic, but we have Greek and Hebrew. And I, again, I want you to understand it's the wisdom of God where this is drawn up and given to us. Because in the New Testament, we have the work of Jesus Christ, rich and full and wonderful, and it needed a very specific ability of language to communicate the theological truths that are found in salvation. They're, they're, they're words and ideas that, that we still struggle with when we try to come to a, a meaning and, and explain all of the flavor that the Greek language can give us about the truths of salvation. The Hebrew language is not that expressive. It's an experiential language. 
And what I mean by that is this. If God explains something, rather than then to tell it in its theological fullness, he expects us to respond to it, to live it out, to, to act it out in such a way that the, the statement is proved true by the relationship or by the fullness of it. And so I want you to see first, we learn about God's glory, or excuse me, about God's power. David gave praises God for his power. Expressing the idea of power, the Old Testament uses verbal pictures. And here in the psalm, we're going to see two of them. So David says first that he is in the shadow of your wings. And the paints here, through the work of the Holy Spirit and David the author, is simply that, that hen that is now down and dropping her wings, and you and I are under the care of the wings of God, just as a small chick is under the wings of protection of mother hen. And so God's looking down, and he explains his power, the power of a, of a God of very gods, of a God who exists in a living way that's not like the idol's but wonderful and powerful. He will say it later in this same chapter. God helps us with his strong right arm. Now, he's not saying that his left arm is weak or those of you who are left-armed people are somehow deficient. What he's simply saying is that in most cases, most people are right-handed. And the right arm or the right hand is the strong one in a general sense. And if God is looking down and saying, I'm not using my strength. I'm using the zenith of my strength. I'm using my right hand, my right arm. And so we will see that throughout. In other places, he uses the idea of a, a horn of an ox. And forgive me, but I don't know that there's anything more frightening to be out in the field and the bull drops his head and heads your way. All right? I don't know if any of you are watching any of the little short clips that are making it through the internet right now, but camera, you're on. Idiots in Yellowstone are going up to the, to the buffalo or the bison that are there. Forgive me, how stupid. All right? When they drop their heads at one ton and show their horn, they are showing their power. Get out of their way. God's saying the same thing in Psalms when he says, this is the power, the authority, the horn of God on high. Pay very careful attention. So David says, man, I trust. I've learned about your power. Secondly, he looks down and he says, I, I, I know your glory. David Tabernacle, where he, he learned the most about God's power. When he talks about the tabernacle later, he will talk about the tent. He might talk about the house. You all remember Psalms 23, I will dwell in the house 
of the Lord forever. The same picture. He wants to be with God. And God's glory is very active. Family, this is not like a statue when you would have walked into a pagan temple and you would have seen the statuary representing the gods made of stone or wood or gold or silver. You would have seen these, these images that did nothing. God in the Ark of the Covenant. And where the Ark was, the Shekinah glory existed. Cloud by day, fire by night, it was very, very visible. David said, I know the presence of God. Family, most likely the greatest lesson that David learns from the glory of God is when he is taking the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place in Judah to Jerusalem. 30,000 troops were called to be a part of this occasion. Everything we read about, it is very festal. We see singing, we see joy, we see a variety of instruments, a pageantry as they are going and taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The problem is, is they're taking the Ark of the Covenant in by cart. Uzzah walking with the cart carrying the ark sees the oxen stumble. And when the oxen stumble, the ark shakes. And doing nothing more than to reach up and stop the ark from shaking, God strikes Uzzah dead. You see, they did the right thing the wrong way. God had demanded that the Levites carry the Ark of the Covenant wherever it was to go. And when, and when David did this more pragmatic way of doing so, God found it to be an unacceptable plan. And though the ideas were right, the emotions were right, the, the, the festive joy was right, the strategy was wrong, and the holiness of God and the glory of God showed the power of God, and David would remember it forever. He is a holy God, and he is expected to be followed the right way. That's why you and I are reminded today that there is only one way that we find Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us there is only one way to the Father, and it is through him. So people across the world can, can search for a God. There are those who, who claim Christianity who can fall to the pageantry of Christianity. But unless they come recognizing that the only way that they will see God the Father in the day to come will only be through the relationship 
with Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the singular way that we will have peace with God. And as we submit and agree to that plan, else we miss the true glory and the holiness of God. So David says, I've seen the power and the glory of God. He thirdly says, David relies on the steadfast love of God. He says, that love is better than life. And, and again, forgive me for a moment, you who are a little younger. Seniors, don't you get to the point where you look down and say, wow, I'd rather be in heaven with the Lord than to continue to go through what I'm going through. Don't you look down and say, wow, it, it, this life is, has got some good things to it, but you know, if, if, if the promises of God are anything to be what I understand them to be, I'd rather be there. And so this, this worn-out man, King David, looks to, to us this morning and he says, the steadfast love, the, the, the love that takes care of us day by day, moment by moment, blesses us in ways that we don't even understand that it was a blessing, allowing us privilege that we don't even grasp to appreciate. He looks down and he says, wow, that love is better than anything else in the living experiences that I have. And so family, that love is experienced love. One of the, one of the great moments in the Old Testament is the, the relationship that's built between Abraham and God. And we get what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. The promise that God makes to Abraham to watch over him. That he would make him a great nation of which King David fully appreciates. He is the zenith moment. And until the revival and the arrival of Jesus Christ, we will not see a greater moment in Israeli history than there the reign of King David. He sees it. But here in Genesis chapter 17... That growing relationship is expressed. And listen to what he says. God tells Abraham, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So family, as promise is being played out, Abraham gives his highest servant, Eleazar, an assignment. I want you to go get a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, forgive me. If my dad had ever looked down and said, I'm going I'm to ask one of my employees, one of my dear friends, to go get you a wife, I would have my father committed. And then I'd fire his friend. That's my job. wasn't done that time. Now, Eliezer takes ten camels, packs them full of presents for this new bride, and heads off to go find that bride. He arrives to his location, and I want you to hear his prayer. One of my favorites of all time. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please 
let down your jar and I will water your camels, or drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one to whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Now listen to the, the key part. By this I will know that you have steadfast love to my master. All right? Now forgive me. If I'm going to create a love story, I don't think my love story would go something like this. Lord, I need a drink. And so the first woman, no matter what she looks like, that comes up and says, I'll give you a drink. Oh, and by the way, I'll water all your camels. A camel drinks approximately 10 gallons of water a setting. He has 10 camels. No problem, brother. I'll get it all for you. I'll just pull it up out of the well. All right? Now, I don't know, thinking of Isaac, I didn't think that he would have ever wanted a bodybuilder to be his wife. <laughs> all right? And yet at the same time, let's think this through. Eliezer's not, as, not, not a dummy. The one who shows compassion to a stranger and one who shows a profound work ethic I want that one to, to marry my, my, my master's son. So he's not as dumb as, as at first we think about. But I want you to understand and hear the point of the text. That, that incredible prayer is based on the promise that he was given in chapter 17. If, if you're really the God who's going to make promises to my master, if you're really going to pull it off, you're going to show love by answering my prayer right now because... You promised him that this would be a generational promise. My master's son needs a bride, and this is the kind of bride he needs. Do you really love my master or not? So family, this is a, a profound moment. I promise this, I pull it off. I say. And when we see steadfast love throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, Kevin has made mention of it often in our studies in Psalm, when we see the word hesed, we remember a God who carries through his promises without fail. David said, I know that God. That's a God I follow. That's a God I love. That's a God I want everything to be a part of my life. Family, you and I are blessed with that. We see a, a God who first told us that he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So we see hesed played out in the New Testament. Family, we see glory played out in the New Testament through the person of Jesus and John 1.14 will tell us this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God of very gods became flesh of man, of, of very man. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so family, you and I today are gathered in Jesus' name because we know the culmination of power 
the culmination of glory and the culmination of steadfast love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What a privilege. We know God and God's work. I want you to see, secondly, what do we learn about David's desire towards God? You see, I want to suggest to you today that this is one of the key learning chapters that we have in the Bible. And the reason I say that is this. Often we can do our devotions or often we can gather in Jesus' name and we don't appreciate what a full-bodied expression that should be. Often I will read my devotions in the morning as if this is something that's on my job list, uh, my, my to-do list. And once I've gotten my to-do checked off, I have had my devotions. I've even had prayer, as if somehow closing my eyes in an empty room qualifies for having an intimate moment with God on high in and of itself. I check off my list. David's going to give us a much more full and wonderful relationship and we need to pay attention. Family, he's going to talk about the idea of worship. And please, if you will, think through what you've already experienced in your morning thus far. When you heard the songs, when they first were cast up on the screen, did you look up and go, oh wow, what an explanation of my salvation in Jesus Christ. Man, I can't wait to turn up the volume. Oh my goodness, what a privilege. I get to proclaim my Lord's goodness. I get to thank him for all that he's done. I get to recognize the goodness and the blessings in my life that have come because of him and him alone. He's worthy of everything I say. I've done it with emotion and passion and gusto. Would that describe what you've experienced today? Or would it be, man, that guy's long-winded. Honey, we're never going to make our reservations. There's not going to be any pot roast left at Jerry's. What are we going to do? Is that our thought? Is our thought is, oh man, that tune again? If I have to hear that guitar one more time, I'm going to lose my lunch. Why aren't the drums up there and only the cajon? we get a drummer what, what's your thoughts David's going to give us an entirely different picture and that's the picture I think that we who are Christ followers need to walk out and go wow I'm going to live that out this week I can't wait to next Sunday so that in group dynamic we can express it so let's see what we learn I want you to see the chief thing David is satisfied with, in, and by God. He's running away from Jerusalem, going into the hottest, driest desert you could ever imagine, the wilderness, no water there, nothing to be excited about, and he's running away for his life. And so as he expresses this verse 1, that his soul pants... All he has to do is look around, and he's painted the, the exact picture. 
His desire is expressed both by time and space as well as the very makeup of his body. And I want you to look at the text in light of how he paints it. He speaks of God's provision in the past. So he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, in verse 2. He says, You have been my help, in verse 6. Family, in going through problems, did you ever look back to a past event and look down and say, Wow, God was so wonderful there. And because he was wonderful there, I anticipate him to be wonderful here. You know, and, and again, walk with me, if you will, and let me walk with David. Can't you, can't you imagine 60-some-year-old David going, man, what a cool moment it was to stand there in the Elah Valley and look up to 9-6 Goliath. That guy defied God. I couldn't take it. I took five stones. Forgive me, but I'd have been like this. Five stones. I'm going to kill that sucker. And in doing so, he saw God work in his life. Dynamic, incredible, wonderful. And now he's running away from his son who wants to kill him. And what he remembers, he remembers the past. I remember what you've like. You've been my help. You were there, my, my, my neediest. David doesn't get caught up in the bad trial right now, but he remembers the past and what God did in showing up. David is even more satisfied with God in this present reality. So he says in verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life itself. I'm walking through the desert. I'm escaping my son. Your steadfast love is incredible. He says in verse 6, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. What do you and I do when something wakes us up in the middle of the night that's fear-based and fear-driven? Verse 7, you are my help, present tense reality. Verse 8, your right hand upholds me. I'm escaping my son, and I know that your omnipotence is my right hand and the thing I count on the most right now. Worn out, running away, escaping a hateful son. He is not cut off from a relationship with God on high. And so he praises him about the future. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, family, I don't want you to be surprised right now. But I want you to understand, King David invented the keto diet. <laughs> he looks down and he says, man, I can't imagine anything better than that rich steak soaked in butter. He says, I rejoice in you. I think about you. You've taken care of me. I will praise you again for your provision in my life. He says, and my mouth will praise you. 
you took care of me in the past. I know you're watching over me in the present. And tomorrow, I'll keep praising you. I will be there in life, or because of your steadfast love, I will be with you in death, but I will be praising you in the future. David not only ponders God's care and control in time and space, he also uses seemingly every part of his being to express his loyalty and his walk with God. So family, I want to remind you today, remember that, that lack of theological fullness that the, Greek lang- or the Hebrew language has, and the idea that it's an experiential proclamation. So in verses 1, 5, and 8, his soul thirsts, is satisfied, and clings to God. In saying my soul, he is speaking of all that he is, everything about him, clings to God, is satisfied with God, no matter what he has in life. There is a richness there, and he would rather have God than anything that life has. His hands emphasize a whole body in action. Not only does he say what he believes, not only does he say, I worship with my lips, in a moment we'll see that, his hands are in action to please God. Forgive me, but it was his hands that aimed at Goliath. It was his hands that defended Israel against its enemies. He praised God, and he didn't care what people thought. As it shattered the relationship with his own wife as she berated him for the extreme behavior of his worship. He praised God and didn't care. In verses 3 and 5, his lips and mouth praise God. His care over life and the effort of his lips and his mouth were one of appreciation and worship. I would want to suggest to you in verse 6, his memories, remember what God did when anxiety wakes him up at night and his intellect meditates on God's goodness and in his character through the rest of that night. Too many times we give doctors luck, chance, or talent too much credit, and we forget that God is there in the valley of the shadow of death. We forget that God says, all things will be given to us. David never forgot God's goodness. So when we see Psalm 63, it should remind us that love is a real world effort. Satisfaction with God's love is not some fairy tale relationship, but it is played out here in the real world. A world of God's offer of Jesus Christ to give you salvation. A world 
that thanks him for the job that you have, a world that praises him for the care of a church family that has adopted each and every one of us. And we have connection with one another, and we build upon that, and we recognize that that's a gift from God. Your health is a gift from God, either to keep your eyes on him or to praise him for the health that you have. So also is rising inflation. So also is political intrigue. So also is COVID variants. So also is a lost job. So also is cancers and old age and death. David gave God's love the idea that it was satisfying. Do you? So family, when we see the opportunity to recognize God's goodness in the real world of life, the real world where sometimes we receive blessing that we never deserved, and other times we find tragedy that waits around the corner that we are fearfully concerned will overwhelm us. Do we find the reality that in God and God alone, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I am satisfied and I put my complete trust? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd watch over. How I thank you for your care for us. Dear God, I would ask that, that we recognize that, that you're here with us. That, dear God, we should expect you to be in presence with us. That we should expect you to act. And though there are times when we don't see you in the windshield, we, we recognize as we look backwards through time, we, we, we see that your presence helped here or helped there or provided solution in another place. Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd watch over. Help us to recognize that ultimately you will gain glory not only in our lives, but through world current events and life strategy. And dear God, help us to recognize that glory. And may we be men and women who proclaim and thank you for that glory. Dear God in heaven, may we also recognize that you're in sovereign control and your love is most fully expressed to us in the work of Jesus Christ. And allow us to sing, appreciate, worship with gusto, having recognized and fully, and fully grasp all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.